you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The ChrisVossShow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. Oh, my God. You're not going to believe the brilliant author that we have on today. In fact, he's incredibly prolific. He's a TED All-Star. I'll tell you that. Uh, the TED, uh, you've seen the TED Talks, I should mention. And then uh, he's the author of a ton of books we'll get into. Uh, but before we get to him, be sure to subscribe to the show. If you want to watch the video version of this with the newest technology out there on YouTube, you can actually stream it to your phone, your computers, and screens around your world. YouTube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button there. It's free for an unlimited time to subscribe. Go ahead and subscribe to it. It'll give you a very special feeling and make you feel like you're part of a community, which will be. So that'll be good. Plus, you'll be annoyed by all the notifications we send, which are fun. It's fun, really, when you think about it. Um, anyway, guys, go to goodreads.com for Chris Voss. You can also go to facebook.com, the Chris Voss show. And also, there's another place I'm forgetting, the cvpn.com online podcast. And this episode is brought Brought to you by IFI Audio and their new Neo IDSD. The Neo is the new wave of digital sound listening for your desktop, music, gaming, and bleeding edge Bluetooth, even MQA audio file decoding. Uh, we're using it in the studio right now. I've loved my experience with it so far. It just makes everything sound so much more richer and better and takes things to the next level. IFI Audio is an award-winning audio tech company with one aim in mind, to improve your music enjoyment of quality sound, eradicate noise, distortion, and hiss from your listening experience. Check out their new incredible lineup of DACs and audio enhancement devices at ifi-audio.com. Uh, today, uh, we have a most excellent guest. I've been really interested to have him on the show. He uh, He's prolific in everything he seems to be doing when it comes to thinking about things and being smirt. Uh, it, the uh, name of the gentleman is Juan Enriquez. I'm going to cut that real quick, uh, Juan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the book first. Uh, he is the author of Right, Wrong, How Technology Transforms Our Ethics. His name is Juan Enriquez. He is the leading authority on the economic impact of life sciences and brain research on business and society, as well as a respected business leader and entrepreneur. He was the founding director of the Harvard Business School's Life Sciences Project and is a research affiliate at MIT's Synthetic neurobiology lab he then co-founded excel venture management he's an author and co-author of multitude of booksellers he is also as we mentioned before a ted talks all-star he has nine count them nine ted talks on a variety of subjects as well as dozens of ted x talks welcome to the show Juan. how are you i'm great how are you 
Thank you, thank you very much. It's 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 an honor to have you on the show. Let me hold up your beautiful book here that you have, um, and I like how you designed it. You've got black and white as the cover, and uh, right and wrong on the on the opposing sides. Uh, but before we get into your book, uh, tell people where they can get the book and uh, any plugs that you want people to look you up on the interwebs. So, uh, you know, if you just go to Amazon or any of the sort of book selling sites, you'll find it on there or MIT press. Yeah. And, um, I'd love it if you did that because it'll make your holidays easier with family and your job easier. And hopefully maybe even allow you to have conversations with your kids or grandparents. Mm-hmm. Do you want them to look at any other dot coms like for your Excel venture management or anything? Uh, you know, if you look up Ted and just put in Juan Enriquez, you'll find a talk or two. There you go. Great gift thing. And plus, not only is it a great book and a very smart read, might make your relatives smarter, huh? If you give it to them, friends, neighbors, relatives, all that good stuff. You never know. Hope springs eternal. (laughs) We need as much hope as we can right now. So uh, give us an idea why you wrote this book. You've written a number of books here. Just an extraordinary amount. How many total books do you have, if you don't mind me interjecting? I have about seven now. Seven. There you go. Uh, So look those up, guys, on Amazon. So what motivated you to write right and wrong? So most of my life for the past 30 years has been um, really weird technologies, like trying to figure out how to make synthetic life forms and trying to figure out how new technologies change the brain and change our humanity. And I kept getting asked questions about, okay, but what about the ethics? Is this right or wrong? And I thought the answer would be very simple, but it took me a mere six years to try and figure that out. And so I wrote a short book on that. Here you have it, guys. We have the definitive right and wrong in a book. It's actually exactly the opposite. That's, I started that's out thinking I'm going to write a catechism, and mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you what's right and what's wrong. And the really weird thing is right and wrong changes over time. Mm-hmm. Technology changes right and wrong. And technology is moving at exponential rates. And is that the overview crux of the book, and then you get into some of the details, would you say? I, I think that's right. Um, in this you know, so polarized time, in this so angry time, most of us come at most questions thinking, I know right, and you're wrong if you don't disagree with me. And, you know, first, it's unlikely on all subjects. Uh, but second, even if you are right, even if you're Mother Teresa, this stuff changes so radically over time in terms of what we think was right today will be wrong tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So you talk about what's right and what's wrong or perceptions of what's right or wrong. You know, uh, there's the Dunning-Kruger sort of experience that, that, that many people have of what you don't know, but some people are really, you know, they, 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 they really confident, <laughs> the less that they know, the more confident they seem to be in it. Uh, as aside from people who, you know, look at something and go, I should really learn more. And, and I realize that uh, what's the old rule uh, that I like to talk about is, is uh, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Um, is that some of that that you're talking about in the book? It, you know, it's partly that, but it's, it's also people who are really trying to do the right thing and trying to learn mm-hmm. and the rules change on them. So, you know, we've all probably had this experience where you walk into a place of business and the rules have changed in terms of what you can say or can't say, 
or in terms of how you treat somebody or how you address somebody or what you can joke about or can't joke about. And, and they seem to change ever faster. And people seem to get more and more upset if you use the wrong word 10 seconds ago, 10 minutes ago, 10 months ago, or 10 years ago. And so part of what I think we have to do is we have to understand that the context of a word can completely change, that an action can be seen in a completely different light, and that those rules are changing. So a costume you thought was funny 10 years ago can look very different today. Mm-hmm. And how do you judge the past? How do you treat each other today? And how do we educate each other on this stuff? Mm-hmm. So is it something where we need to understand that, that this evolves? I mean, you bring up some really great points in the book, like looking back at slavery, where we have to understand the time period of it. We have to judge it, but we also have to have some perspective. Well, start with an absolute. Okay. Enslaving people, indentured servitude, serfdom, absolutely wrong. Right? I mean, there isn't a person listening who wouldn't agree with that statement. So if we all know that this was completely wrong, then the question is, why did human beings tolerate this and actually make it legal for millennia? Because this wasn't just the U.S. This was China, India, Africa, the Greeks, the Romans, everybody had slaves. Why did we tolerate it for millennia? And then the flip side of that question is, how did we get smart so that it, in legal terms, disappeared from most of the world in a few decades. Because mm-hmm. most countries got rid of slavery in a pretty short period of time. Part of the story is there were a series of incredibly brave abolitionists and outspoken activists who put their lives on the line, like Harriet Taubman and Harriet Beecher Stowe, and that certainly deserves enormous credit. The question I ask in the book is, is it a complete coincidence that we started to do away with the oppression of other human beings when we started to have energy? Because a single barrel of oil contains 10 years of a human being's labor in energy equivalent. And is it a complete coincidence that we started to do away with these practices when we had the Industrial Revolution and we had thousands of horsepower? And so... The narrative of technology in terms of ethics is normally the Terminator's coming, technology's going to destroy us all. In this particular case, it allowed us to free millions and millions of people while having more and producing more. And, and what ended up happening is we doubled and tripled the average human lifespan, and we massively increased wealth. So I, what you're saying is, because is, that was the thing I was going to ask you about the book, it's, it's entitled How Technology Transforms Our Ethics. And, you know, I never really thought about it from that aspect. About the same time that a lot of this stuff was going on, we were technologically advancing to where you wouldn't need slaves quite as much to work a field. Um, so does technology tend to raise our awareness or is it a matter of convenience uh, or realizing that, that, hey, we should quit being less jerks because uh, we have better technology, or uh, what What say you? So, you know, technology sometimes changes ethics towards the, the bad, but very often it changes it towards the good. So 
you know, I was brought up in Mexico and I was brought up to be a little bigot. I went to, you know, Jesuit school every morning and listened to the priest and the preacher and teacher and peers and laws and newspapers. And everybody told me one of the worst things you could be was gay. And through 1997, two-thirds of the United States believed gay marriage was absolutely wrong. And today it's flipped 180 degrees. And when you think, okay, here's something that is inculcated in young children as a fundamental belief by the people they admire, how in the world did our society as a whole flip 180 degrees majority to majority on that subject? And again, it's got to do a lot with technology. It was a lot of us being exposed to the tragedy of AIDS, Hmm. of seeing people suffer, of seeing people come out of the closet, of having media bring theater and television and music and film and all of these extraordinarily talented people in this community in a visible way into our lives so that you could see the the pain, the anguish, the creativity, the, the humanity, which made it so much harder to see these people as the other, the mm-hmm. people who were to be shunned, the people who were to be exiled. And, and it's very strange because a lot of people who thought they'd learned right all of a sudden find themselves boycotted or shunned because they haven't changed what they were taught was right as children. Mm-hmm. And I think when we judge other people, we have to see how they're educated and where they're coming from. And we have to use two words that we never use today, which are humility and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, my forefathers were wrong and the founding fathers were wrong. And you have to think if I was educated as a 12 year old in that time, how would I have acted? What would I have been taught? And, and I want to stress that doesn't make the stuff right. Those actions were wrong. They were hideous. They are to be condemned. But you also have to think a lot of stuff we're doing today is going to be wrong and hideous and condemned as technology evolves into the future and we are judged in retrospect. Uh, and that was one of the things you talked about in the book. Are we going to be around 300 years from now to to be able to determine, you know, hey, was it, whoa, were we doing wrong? Which was probably a lot at this point. I, I remember a comedian, I think he told a joke. He says, you know, when the ar- they call our archaeologists dig us up from, I don't know, whatever the the uh, Charlton Heston, uh, you know, Planet of the Apes world is. Um, and they go, hey, what were these humans doing back then? You know, they're going to see all these photos of us online where we're always smiling. And they're like, man, they had some weird thing where they're always smiling. I guess they evolved or something. <laughs> and, and they're going to wonder, God, their, their society was either really happy or really high. Uh, but you talk about it, some interesting things, too, about, I mean, there's a lot of different aspects of this LGBTQ, like you mentioned, slavery. Um, a lot of people had their minds changed recently with the technology with George Floyd, you know, seeing what uh, a lot of my uh, black authors have come on have, have said is was a black lynching, a form of a black lynching uh, live on TV or recorded on TV. And everyone saw it. And, and everyone who had a soul was lost in the humanity of that. Um, 
and uh, and and it really it it seems to have changed a lot of you know the adoption of Black Lives Matter, where a lot of white people didn't get behind Black Lives Matter back in Obama's years and et cetera. And we've had a lot of discussions about that, but um, so it's interesting what you are talking about in the book as to how we do that. How do we get ahead of that where we don't have to wait for technology to to uh, to inform us or enlighten us or to to evolve us? I think the first thing is to have an open mind. If if you enter any conversation with the notion, I'm right and you're absolutely wrong, you, you quit listening. You, you quit trying to even understand why does this person have a different viewpoint from me. And and I think the starting point has to be 98% of people are decent human beings trying to do the right thing. There There are 2% who are psychopaths or sadists or horrible human beings and i get it but when you polarize society and you have to pick a side and you say i'm this or i'm that you you enter a trench and you give cover to people who are doing horrendous things in your name And, and we're seeing more and more of that where you cannot denounce people on your side for doing stuff which is just wrong Mm -hmm. because the only other alternative is then you're designated an X. There's, there's almost a no man's land where you're shot if you try and reach a middle ground with the other side, either by the other side or by your own side because you become a deserter. Mm-hmm. And that makes conversations at work walking on eggshells. That makes conversations on college campuses almost impossible. That makes discussions with people who have a different political viewpoint or viewpoint on race or religion or whatever, almost impossible. Mm-hmm. So you're talking a little bit about like cancel culture. I'm talking about cancel culture. I'm talking about attack and destroy anybody who disagrees with me. Culture. I'm talking about you're not one of us. You're one of the other culture. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this because we're in an interesting time right now. Um, I don't, a lot of our polarization and I'll let you correct me if I'm wrong because this is your book and you've done the research, but a lot of our polarization circles around, uh, one man really in, in the political identity, uh, uh, that, that has been pretty toxic and who's, I, I think we can all agree main motive has been to divide us. Um, it appears that sun may be setting soon. Um, do you see a future after this is, well, is, is that correct? Or um, do you, do you, I mean, a lot of polarization, me too, everything has come out black lives matter. A lot of this stuff has really come out of, out of this uh, one man being the leader on the, on the white horse. Um, I don't know if you want to, am I correct or, or where are we in that, in that scheme of things? You know, I think this one man is nitroglycerin. (laughs) So I think he, he came into a very, very dry forest and ignited it. But we've been spending a lot of money trying to convince 51% of the country that they should have nothing to do with the other 49%, that the other 49% are retrograde troglodytes, ignorance, uh, not good human beings, they're baby killers, they're pedophiles, they're this, they're that, the other. And and somehow we've allowed ourselves to come into this thing. But, you know, 
you and I and everybody here have had extraordinary generosity from people as we drive across this country. And as long as you can stay off one or two topics, these are decent human beings. And when we say all X are Y, we, we end up supporting some pretty awful things in their names. So I'll gross generalizations are bad? I'm sorry, the... So gross generalizations are bad, or? Well, you know, one of the ways to address this is, let's assume you have a very good-looking 16-year-old daughter and you need an emergency babysitter for the weekend. Would you rather have Donald Trump or Barack Obama as a babysitter? (laughs) And once you answer that, now tell me, would you rather have Paul Ryan or Anthony Weiner? Right? Yeah. And, but and, definitely and, and Paul, right? You know, I understand there's a lot of abuses, and I understand there have been terrible things. But let me tell you, I grew up in Mexico, and if you have a police that doesn't function, that doesn't protect people, that really does become corrupt and killers, you are not in favor of not having an effective police force. Mm-hmm. And, and so the question that drives me nuts is you either see lawns today that have a, a yard sign that says BLM, or you see yard signs that say we support the police. And, and the question that goes through my mind is, okay, why don't I ever see a yard that has both of those signs on the yard and then a sign that says E Pluribus Unum. Because out of many, one is what makes this country great. Mm-hmm. And, and having people in communities that may not think exactly the way you do, that may not have been educated the same way you do, that may not understand what you need in terms of respect and space. But, but let's have a talk about that, because... Let's talk about the consequences of, of ripping ourselves apart and stereotyping big chunks of people as the other. Mm-hmm. Three quarters of the flags, borders, and anthems in Europe did not exist a century ago. Europe continues to rip itself apart. The Catalans want to leave the Basques, the Welsh, the Scots, the Northern Italians, the Walloons in Belgium, the Southern Finns, the Corsicans. It goes on and on. It is really easy to rip a great nation apart. It's really hard to keep a community, especially a community where you begin to see more and more people, more and more groups as the other. And so the question that I sometimes ask cadets, if I'm given the privilege of lecturing at West Point, is how many stars do you think will be in the U.S. flag in 50 years? And that's a gut punch to a cadet because they're willing to die for that flag. So before they get too angry with me, I come back with the next question. Tell me exactly how many presidents of the United States have been buried under exactly the same number of stars they were born under. And the answer is exactly zero. There has never been a president of the United States buried under the same number of stars he was born under. Hmm. And until there's a president that's born after 1959, that dies before there's a change in the flag, there will never be a president of the United States 
buried under the same number of flags of stars they were born under. Mm-hmm. So it's not as crazy a question as it seems. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and we take this country for granted. We take our community for granted. We think we can rip each other apart and stereotype each other. And, and that that won't tear the nation apart. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really dangerous. Do we need to have leaders that, that take us down a uniting path? Does that help? I think we need to see the humanity in most other people. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't do that, then we can't isolate the truly evil. And, and we can't see the truly evil. You know, one of the big stains on U.S. history is what happened with the Japanese internment in World War II, where they took the Japanese-American families and put them in basically jails. What's incredible to me is that most Americans understand and recognize how wrong that was. But there's an enormous number of Americans who are watching the same thing happen to Hispanics, documented or not. And it's actually worse than what happened in World War II because the families aren't together. They're ripping the families apart. They're putting the kids in cages. They're putting them on cement floors with space blankets. They're not allowing human contact, and they're deliberately losing the parents. Mm-hmm. That's stuff that the Argentine junta and generals didn't do. That's stuff that the Chilean generals did do. That's stuff that the Brazilian generals did, and they were crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and how a 90%-plus majority of this country doesn't see how fundamentally wrong that is and that it's going to be a stain that is bigger than that stain of World War II. But these are crimes against humanity. How the hell have we polarized to the state where that is not front and center Mm. and that is not, you know, the, the basic fundamental discussion today. Instead, we're discussing whether this tweet was right, whether that tweet was right, whether this insult or nickname. We're losing sight of the forest. Mm -hmm. Is that one of the things that got us here? I mean, one of the one of the things we've been watching, there's been a lot of discussions we've had with authors on the Chris Voss show, um, is the, the dissolving of the middle class and the desperation that comes from that. You know, you see that with a lot of societies that fell, Venezuela um, and different things, where when hard times come and you see the rise of authoritarianism or fascism, a lot of it comes out of desperation. The support of it comes out of desperation because there's some sort of sunsetting on on uh, the, whatever the norms are of society. And, you know, in, in, like recently we had uh, the author of Strongmen on, and she talked about how anytime there was a rise for LGBTQ or women's rights or something, or, or there was job issues, economy. You saw that with the Germany, you know, uh, post World War One, where they were struggling economically, and 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 so. Populations, you know, in in the desperation that they're <clears throat> involved in, where they're just losing everything, and they're in that uh, what was the movie Network, where you're just like, give me my tires and my and my TV at the end of the day, just leave me the fuck alone. Um, is that is that is that one of the things that drives a lot of this factor? You know, again, it's two sides of technology, and it's very weird. 
we are able to generate wealth on a scale that is unimaginable to any previous generation. I'll, I'll give you a specific example. So this little app that a lot of us use called WhatsApp for messaging and stuff, 50 people created that. And they sold that for about $22 billion. And just to put that in context, that means that 50 people created wealth equivalent to every person, every gardener, every journalist, every mechanic, every lawyer, every politician, everybody working in a country during an entire year didn't generate as much wealth as that. And that is true for 15 Latin American or Caribbean countries where the GDP of the nation in a year is smaller than what these 50 kids created. So by the time you get to the Amazons of the world or the Facebooks or the Apples or the Chinese companies, you're, you're talking about economies the size of countries being generated by not that many people in a very short period of time. And we've never seen that. That does two things. It drives this incredible disparity in wealth. It makes the rich just crazy rich versus everybody else. But the thing that I think we're not seeing yet, which technology is enabling, is it changes the fundamental issue of economics from the allocation of scarcity. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough iPhones, we don't have enough penicillin, we don't have enough education. And it creates a society of what Peter Diamandis calls abundance, where we have more than enough of most things. And the issue is how do we distribute it, not do we have enough? And, and you can justify not providing education, antibiotics, basic health care, shelter for the middle class if there isn't enough to go around. Ethically, it is much harder to support that position if there was more than enough and you didn't choose to help distribute it, mm -hmm. right? It, 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 the ethics change because you can no longer hide behind the fig leaf of, well, I'm sorry, there just wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. One of the chapters in your book you talked about was renewing capitalism's license. I mean, it's one of our problems in federal capitalism. I mean, capitalism is great, but there is a point where <laughs> it's great for a few people. Well, I think that's, you know, we're, we're entering a period. We, we look back at how people worked, and we look at how long they worked and how brutal the conditions were. And we just can't conceive of working for a feudal landlord. We can't conceive of working in the mills in Britain at age 10 or 12. We can't conceive of working six or seven days a week for 12 or 18 hours under almost indentured servitude conditions. I think what the current forms of production capitalism could allow us to do if we choose it is to reduce the work week massively and provide a universal basic income and standard of living. Mm -hmm. And and boo on us if we don't understand that, right? Um, I think we have an opportunity to treat other people in a way which we couldn't have done that before because we didn't have enough. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the optionality of doing that. 
And, and so I think when you talk about capitalism, I think we're going to have to have a serious conversation. It would not surprise me if the work week becomes a 20-hour work week um, going forward. It wouldn't surprise me for many people. It wouldn't surprise me if you still have a lot of very rich people, but you also have the basics provided for almost everybody. Uh, you know, I, I think we either reinvent it or people are going to burn it down. Yeah. I mean, we we definitely got to do something because we seem to be at, like you talk about in the book, we're, you know, at odds with each other and we're, we should be at an inflection point if we're not already. Um, one of the things you talked about in your book that I noticed, uh, you were talking about the disparity of, of what it takes to get an education, college costs compared to just about everything, what everything else costs in the world. How does that affect uh, what we're talking about here? So when you think of the cost of a dozen pencils, a phone, an international call, a shirt, almost anything. The costs have been dropping massively over the last few decades. What you're seeing now is there are two things that are consistently going up in price much faster than inflation, education and healthcare. And those are the two things that people need because if you're not healthy, you can't work and you can't enjoy life. And if you're not educated, you don't have a shot. And those are the two places where we have allowed crazy unethical behavior. You, you shouldn't go to a pharmacist and hear your money or your life because they won't give you that prescription mm-hmm. if you don't pay. You shouldn't have to have loans. It, it, you know, the, the current system of student loans is so crazy because you could go out, get 10 credit cards, buy all the fashion baubles in the world, and then declare bankruptcy. But you can't do that with student loans. So there's no incentive to stop predatory pricing. There's no incentive to stop these diploma mills that are just exploiting kids and laddling on a debt that never goes away. Yeah. But that's completely unethical. That's got to stop. I, and, and you know, we, I totally agree with you. I, I owned a mortgage company for almost 20 years before the bust. And uh, uh, one of the things I, would, I was seeing at the time was this, this extraordinary thing of the student loans really impacting people's lives and almost an indentured servitude, really, when it came down to it. I mean, there was there were people that I saw that, you know, they take an extraordinary loans to do something that didn't have a, an ROI, a return on investment. Like you would see, you know, like you spent $50,000 to become a social worker. Do you know what social workers get paid on an annual basis and how much you would need to make in profit to service the ROI on that loan? Um, I saw people who went to school to be either doctors or pharmacists or, you know, something in the field of between brain surgery and, you know, all the different levels below dentists, et cetera, et cetera. And I would see guys that, you know, uh, while they were in the medical field and and a high paying field, the service to their uh, indentured servitude college loans would, was going on for 10 to 15 years. Um, I've known people that are my age, they're just barely now paying off their, that 50 that, that they're just now paying off their student loans. It's extraordinary. And it, it's almost like an indentured servitude because, 
I mean, I, I had one friend, she, uh, I think at 45, she's like, I can go buy some cars and some stuff now. And you're like, holy shit, you've half your life is gone. And now you can finally live it because now you got your student loans paid off. Yeah. And that, that is going to be seen as so crazy unethical. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's five years or 10 years, but it can't come soon enough. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, we've seen the stagnation of, of employment wages for 40 years. I think, I think politicians have something to blame for this, but also a society that doesn't educate itself. You know, I mean, my mom was a mother for 20 years. Uh, she, she, you know, would constantly call me and complain about how the legislature is doing this. They're doubling our class sizes. They're taking away our money. Um, you know, we're going to raise a more idiot society. We're not teaching civics and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then there also has to come in, I think, you know, for me, I wasn't highly educated as a youth. Um, I started my first companies at 18. Uh, I seemed to have some sort of, you know, weird thing where I could figure stuff out and connect dots. But really my real toy was like, go from A to B and do a straight line. Um, and, and, uh, there's nothing brilliant about anything I did. I just went and did it and learned the hard way. And, and, uh, and stuff. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know how much that needs to play into it. So how do you, how do you talk in your book, how we resolve some of these ethics? How do we deal better with each other or analyze each other better from a, a different perspective? You know, I think on, on the one hand, we absolutely have to face the wrongs of the past and mm-hmm. recognize the wrongs of the past. I think we also have to judge people in the past with a whole lot more forgiveness and compassion, right? If Mark Twain used a absolutely banned word today a hundred times in Huck Finn, you have to ask yourself, was he intending to harm or hurt or insult? Right? And, and I think intent matters. And again, it's not justifying the use. It's not saying it was right. But it's saying maybe you and I at the same time writing may have been even harsher or stupider in this use than he was. Mm-hmm. And we have to apply that same lens to ourselves because there's a very weird thing, right? If, if you're a historian, you go into these archives and you research the life of Henry VIII and all the awful things he did and his relationship with his wives and everything else. Even the most famous person in history, you know a whole lot less about that person than future generations are going to know about you and I and everybody listening. Mm -hmm. Because think about when you go into a bar and you see somebody who's got a bunch of tattoos. By the time you look at those tattoos, you've got some idea of what that person cares about and where they've been. But you can cover those tattoos. You can roll your sleeves down. You can wear a hat. You can wear a turtleneck, whatever. We can't do that because we've all been electronically tattooed, right? By our Instagram, by our Facebook, by our Twitter, by our uh, dating profiles, by our credit card receipts. So there's all this electronic exhaust that creates a tattoo of who we are, what we thought, and that doesn't get covered by a shirt. That doesn't get buried when we die. Mm -hmm. And so people are going to know exactly what we were thinking, exactly who we were with, exactly what we did. 
to a degree that nobody on earth has ever been transparent and judged before. And going back to the great Latin American writer Borges, when, when the military junta came after him, he laughed and he said, how can you threaten me other than with death? If you truly want to make me scared, threaten me with immortality. Well, guess what? We're now all immortal, hmm. right? And and your great-grandkids will be analyzing your dating profile and <laughs> your sexual preferences because you're putting them out there. This is why you have kids. God damn it, I really thought I had, didn't I? <laughs> um, so hopefully they won't be as harsh in their judgments as we are. They, they, my lineage dies with me, baby. It's over. <laughs> it's over. But no, I, I get what you're saying. Um, you know, it's extraordinary the thought you put into it because it's true. A lot of people haven't really thought about that. Maybe I should start asking people on social media. Do you want your kids reading that? Your grandkids and great grandkids reading that? Uh, you know, I mean, you, you you bring a lot to to bear because we're constant. We're doing that right now. We're judging very harshly the Wood Wilsons of the world. Uh, uh, you know, people a hundred to hundred years ago, um, and uh, and and sometimes and some of the, we're judging them by the rules we're trying to apply today, um, and and yeah, I think I I think I heard or read you know George Washington grew up in a or many of the people that wrote the Constitution they grew up in um, in slavery they from a very young age they 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 had slaves were in the house you know being around them and and so to them it was a so enmeshed in their society that being able to see outside of it was was uh was hard to do but you know they wrote the famous words um in the constitution that giving you know every man uh rights and yet yet uh this was something that had to evolve and 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 be enlightened and awakened um so i i noticed in conclusion your book you had you had kind of some good advice um, and you have different pieces of advice throughout the book, but in the conclusion thing, you kind of gave us some different things to, to look at. And um, uh, let me see if I can find that. But you have, you have some different perspectives or questions we can ask ourselves in terms of ethics uh, and stuff. Do you want to go through some of that? So I think, you know, first and foremost, it's it's important we recognize the basic humanity in the other person, right? I mean, I, I keep stressing this, but get in a car, go talk to people. Almost anywhere you go, you're going to find people who are absolutely great human beings. And, and they may be coaches, or they may be plumbers, or they may be university professors, or they may be business people. You can't drive anywhere in this country and not find people who are extraordinary and admirable and who get up in the morning and say, you know, I want to do the right thing. I want to be a good parent. I want to be a good employee. I want to be a good boss. I want to be a good teacher. That's in people's hearts. And we have to, you know, provide not a catechism of the, if you do this, you're right. And if you do this, you're wrong. We have to provide a ground where we can have different opinions and talk to one another and and still part as friends. And and also a place where we can isolate the truly evil. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not doing that. So I think 
what I'd love people to do is pick up this book, read it with people who disagree with you, read it with kids, read it with a different generation, read it with people who are very angry about something that's different from what you're very angry about. Mm-hmm. And, and listen, don't, don't listen as you're thinking of the answer. Think of the answer after you listen. Okay. It's it, it, Tip O'Neill, who used to be the head of the House of Representatives, once had a young, aggressive, progressive activist run into his office and say, Mr. Speaker, I'm ready to fight the enemy. And O'Neill leaned back and he said, ah, young man, good, I love your energy. Tell me, who are we fighting? Why, the Republicans, of course. Ah, young man, you have much to learn. The enemy's the Senate. Right? <laughs> it just changed the viewpoint of that kid very quickly. And, and, and that's part of what we have to do. The, mm-hmm. the enemy are the people who wish to tear us apart as a community. So let me ask you this on a devil's advocate, because I, I think I understand that portion. But uh, if if... And and I understand that everyone's good people. I mean, if I'm the American on the street, regardless of whatever, I'm I'm going to be nice to you. You're going to be nice to me and be gracious. We might have a polite conversation, just like you talked about. With aside from one or two conversations, we should avoid. Um, we're going to be nice people, and that's great. But if we talk about these things, one of the things that I see as an issue, and 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 I'll ask you to address this but let's say it's something where i want to change your rights or persecute you maybe in a certain way so let's role play here let's say that i'm a woman and i want to have certain rights with my body and you're a person politically who says i want to control your rights especially if i'm not a woman and i should be able to tell you what to do what would be the best approach to that sort of thing in the context that you're describing that doesn't make me want to you know get very upset <laughs> because you're looking to take something away from me i i completely agree um one of the ways of getting people to understand how much things can change even their basic opinions is to say you know while we're on the topic of sex let's talk about having a conversation with our grandparents about what we do today. And imagine bringing your four dear old grandparents back in a time machine like that movie back to the future. Mm -hmm. And so your grandparents are now sitting in your studio and they're 20 something years old and you're interviewing them and telling them about sex. And if you were to do that, you'd first explain that you can now have sex and not have a child because you've got birth control. And yes, you did have birth control since the Egyptian times, but it wasn't consistent and effective. And and now you've completely decoupled the act from the consequence. That would be very weird to grandparents. That's not something they had. Then the second thing you tell them is, look, because I'm going through cancer treatments, I'm going to freeze eggs and then do IVF. And, and they'd say, well, hang on. So IVF, as you just explained it, two bodies never come together physically. They don't have to be in the same room. They don't have to be in the same state. They don't have to be in the same country. And you can conceive a child. That's miraculous. We used to call that the immaculate conception. And then you 
explained that you can now have surrogate mothers and freeze eggs and have identical twins born 20 years apart. So for many people listening to us, birth control is normal. IVF is normal. And freezing eggs and for people who can't have a child, having a surrogate mother is something that they think is okay. That would have horrified our grandparents. They, they would have taken the same position that this person's taking against a woman being able to control her body. And so I think part of the way in which you jujitsu this conversation is to say, I hear you, but you have to understand that this is something that is changing as we learn more. And I, I think you know, our, our concept of how you conceive a child is going to change so radically in the measure that you're able to reproduce cells without having to bring, or reproduce bodies without having to bring egg and sperm together. Yeah. I think our concept of children is going to change so fundamentally in the measure that today you and I and most listeners would be horrified by the idea of deliberately gene editing a child except for a deadly genetic condition. But you could easily see a conversation with your grandkids where they say, boy, you people were so primitive back then that you didn't bother to take out the cancer-causing genes. So I still have a KRAS, I still have a P53, I still have a BRCA gene, I have cancer, because you out of superstition didn't edit me and, yeah. and it flips 180 degrees. So I'm, I'm against that. And I'll tell you why, because it puts Mari, uh, you are the father out of a job. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Set that up. Yeah, Cause go. I mean, we can't put Mari out of work. That's a great show. Have you ever taken <laughs> Um, so do, do we, do we all have to read the book and come to a place of a conversational agreement to where we have to, realize that ethics are always evolving evolving instead of being cemented or concrete in our in our analyzation and we have to have a little bit of take and give or is it watching uh the example of prior 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 what the hell prior what the fuck <laughs> prior <laughs> i don't know where that came from uh prior uh evolving of our ethics to get us motivated to realign with what we're currently addressing? Look, that, that which human beings hold most dear and are often willing to give their lives for mm -hmm. often disappears. So if ethics don't evolve and if your beliefs don't evolve, you as a religion tend to go extinct. Yeah. And 99% of the world's religions have gone extinct. So when you go to a history museum, when you go to an art museum, when you go to an archaeology museum, a big chunk of those museums is dead gods. So here's Zeus, and here's Zarathustra, and here is Neptune, and here is Tetzalcoatl, and here's Tlaloc. And all the vessels and all of the symbols and all of the jewels dedicated and all the effort dedicated to that god that religion didn't evolve. They didn't 
learned that ethics and right and wrong changes. And they became more and more fundamentalist, became more and more conservative, and became less and less relevant to that society. Similar things happen to the way we used to organize countries. All the heraldic shields that determine, you know, I will die for the shield, or if this shield marries this shield, that becomes a country. That's all gone away. So, so I think as we go forward and as we try and create communities and as we try and keep countries and societies together, labeling people as the other destroys societies. Not evolving your ethics destroys societies. Not having compassion and dialogue and, and helping bring people along destroys societies. And I'm an optimistic curmudgeon. I think humans are much better off today than they were in 1900 on average and much better off than they were in 1800 and 1700 in the year 1000. So even given some of the horrors of today and many of the wrongs of today, I'd love to wake up in 100 years and see how this story plays out. If we're not all in the Planet of the Apes uh, archaeology <laughs> site, right? <laughs> well, that's right. Well, we may have engineered monkeys by then, so it may look something like that. Yeah, they may have taken over and stuff. But no, I, I love the principles you're talking about. I'm just trying to figure out how to get to that point where when uh, we can all have those conversations. I mean, when you're dealing with people that that don't want to learn anything new, that that are insistent on, on the Dunning-Kruger scale of of that they know everything without exploring other worlds, sometimes trying to crack that nut open. You know, I mean, if, if I want to have a discussion with you about a certain subject, we, we both kind of have to be on the same page that we're willing to explore the possibilities as opposed to, no, I'm right and I'm stuck and mired in my position. Well, you have to put them in a context where you find places where they may have changed their minds mm. or you find mm. places where they may think differently from their grandparents mm-hmm. and you may want to put them in a position where first you understand why they're in that position, right? Because, you know, if you and I were educated in a certain environment or a certain structure, maybe one out of a hundred or one of a thousand of us would have gotten out of that and learn something completely different without leaving, without being educated somewhere else. And, and that's why the army was so important as, as a community building institution, because it was hard as hell to maintain segregation when the person you'd been fighting next to your buddy who saved your life suddenly couldn't use your same water cooler, suddenly couldn't go to the same restaurant, Like there was a complete dissonance between what you were living with, who this person was, and what the laws were. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same thing with people who were gay, right? I mean, once people started to come out and they were your cousins and they were your brother and they were your friends and they were the, your architect and stuff, it becomes a hell of a lot harder to demonize the other. Mm-hmm. So humanizing the other becomes incredibly important. One of the things we've done wrong in COVID is a lot of people have gone towards the technical arguments and the big numbers instead of the humanizing of the cases that are out there. And, you know, that that is... We're, we're, because of the law of large numbers, we are... 
doing one of the cruelest things we have ever done to U.S. society, which is we're letting 9-11s happen every day, and we're not stopping it. And, and that I can't tell you how harshly we're going to be judged in the future because of what we're doing today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me about what you're talking about is we were doing the same thing with the school shootings up until now where we were, we were dehumanizing those and just going, well, you know, another shooting day. Okay. Well, whatever. And I completely agree with you. And that that's going to be this, one of the great moral failings of our society. But, you know, coming back to something you mentioned earlier, which was George Floyd, that stuff had been going on for a long time. And there had probably been 10 times as many incidents a decade ago and 100 times as many incidents in the 1960s and 1,000 times more of those incidents in the 1900s. Not a single one of those is justified, right? I'm not arguing in any way, shape, or form this is ever justified. But what gives me hope is that each of us now carries a full broadcast studio in his or her pocket. And so before you had to have a television crew there, as occurred in Los Angeles with the Rodney King rides, right? But now everybody's got it. A yeah. television thing. And, and it becomes harder and harder for injustice or corruption or evil not to be shown. Mm-hmm. And it's scaring a lot of people who, you know, thought they were, you know, above the law or not accountable. They better be scared because we can now hold them accountable. Can it also be used for evil? I mean, we've seen, you know, if you look at what Betsy DeVos does with the Council of national policy and the radio stations they run and the networks they run and, and how they, they can really just beat in, uh, you know, messaging. Um, and uh, you've talked about that in your book with Facebook and LinkedIn and, you know, all these different uh, Twitter, you know, and the messaging and, and the, 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 that, that sort of uh, well, messaging that cements those ideas into people's head that makes them un, unmitigable in, in their minds to new thoughts. You know, that's one of the hardest things that we're going to have to deal with because let's talk about drugs for one second. We're getting so good at chemistry that we can generate millions of molecules very quickly. And, And molecules in the brain act a little bit like Lego blocks. So you're designing Lego blocks that are stickier and stickier and stickier. And so basically what you're doing is you're taking these chemicals and going after the receptor sites and deliberately engineering to be more addictive. So the drugs that, you know, were around when we were kids are completely different from the drugs that are around now. The, the degree of how quickly you are hooked that you see with opioids is a very different structure from what was happening with very damaging drugs a couple of decades ago. And something similar is happening with the targeting on some of these social media stuff because we've become so afraid since 9-11. And and a country that was very confident, a country that was very certain of itself, all of a sudden, all of the messaging is be afraid, be very afraid, be terrified, 
be an informer. Think about walking into an airport back when we used to be able to walk into airports. (laughs) The first thing you hear, if you see something, say something. If there's any unattended baggage, if there's any suspicious activity, right? So you're constantly bombarded, not by, you should be so happy you're taking a trip with the kids. It's be terrified and be terrified of everybody around you and report everybody around you. And the media has caught that message and, and, and it, you know, it terrifies you because you're sitting there minding your own business and all of a sudden you see breaking news alert and those tones of music and your heart just goes, oh, shit, now what? Right? And, and that works. And, and fear and anger is powering so much of our social interaction. And it's, it's so addictive mm-hmm. that it's really dangerous. And it really targets our fight and flight sort of mechanisms. You know, like news, news stations had that, you know, every, every lead on every day was like, today or tonight at 11, we'll cover how hugs are dangerous and horrible and kill people. And you're like, hugs? What the fuck? Oh, I better find out what hugs are doing. You know? right. No, I think that's exactly right. And, and th- that's not new, right? Because the old saying that editors had, if it bleeds, it leads. So that's been true for a long time. What's different is the weaponization, both of chemicals and drugs and the weaponization of the news and the targeting of the news. And and that's where technology has played a really nasty role. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. So we have these two balances. We have technology that can be used for good or technology that can be used for bad. No question. Definitely. And that's why people should read your book. Anything we missed in, in the book so far in discussing it, we of course want people to read it, but uh, um, anything we missed? You know, I think it, it took me six years to write this thing because, you know, I thought I knew right from wrong. And I thought this is going to be a short article. I just have to tell people what's right and wrong in genetic research or brain research. And boy, was I wrong. Right. And, and the more I dug, the more I understood that the rules change and the faster the rules change. And I, I guess what I'd love people to do is if you read it, if you discuss it with people, let me know where I was wrong and let me know what I missed and let me know what we're going to be doing in the future that in retrospect is going to make what we do today look pretty darn silly, if not completely wrong. So how do you think your book's going to hold up in 300 years then? (laughs) You know, one of the things I try and do really hard, sometimes people call me a futurist. There's no way I'm a futurist because if I really knew what the future was going to do, I would be a multi-billionaire off the stock market. Yeah. What I can do is I can look at current trends for a while and say if these trends continue for a year, for five years, for a decade, this is going to be the impact. Mm -hmm. And I try and write books that matter across time. So in 2005, I wrote a book and said, look, there's going to be a giant financial crisis. It's going to be driven by over-leveraged in real estate. And the long-term consequence is going to be it's going to rip nations apart and it's going to divide the politics. And the title of that book was The Untied States of America, Polarization, Fracturing, and Our Future. And that book was not intended to be a how-to manual. It was intended to be a warning. So 
what I'd like to have is this book to be something that is relevant and not completely right. I'm certain I made many boneheaded mistakes in this, but I think the general idea that right and wrong changes over time, that technology changes right and wrong, and that technologies are moving faster and faster, and therefore ethics are going to change faster and faster, is an idea that's got legs for a while. There you go. And the preponderance of the book is built upon that, really, when it comes down to it, if you think about it. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Juan, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing all the wonderful knowledge. And uh, tell people where they can go to uh, find out more about you and pick up the book. So, you know, if you wander over to Amazon or if you wander over to your independent bookstore or uh, any place you buy books, just write wrong Enriquez. Um, and hopefully it will pop up. And uh, if you'd like to watch stuff on brain research or genetics, go to Juan Enriquez at TED. The more you can learn, the more you can know. There you go. Thanks for being on the show with us. Here's his book, Juan Enriquez, Right, Wrong, How Technology Transforms Our Ethics. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Take care, Thank Chris. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Manas, for tuning in. Go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification button. Go to goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss. Go to facebook.com forward slash the Chris Voss show. And also go to the ECVPN. Appreciate Manas for tuning in. Be sure to stay safe, wear your mask, and we'll see you guys next time.